0: And welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Good. I'm so glad. I am, legitimately. It's so nice today. It's like a night. I mean, it is right now because it's still early in the day, but the sun is out and the sky is blue and everything just looks beautiful outside.
1: It does. It does. Um, I immediately got mosquitoes when I walked outside. So I'm having uh, mosquito bites. So I'm I'm not as chipper as you are. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Just because it rained and then immediately there's mosquitoes, I guess. I don't know. They love me. I I still, to this day, if you have a mosquito <laughs> treatment plan, like how to get rid of them or keep them off your body, please help me. I, yeah. This is like a sincere call to action. Yeah. <laughs> please. I'm it's really so weird. over it.
0: Yeah, I know it's really weird because some people, and I think we've even talked about this before, but some people don't seem to be really affected by mosquitoes. Like I've been around people who are like, "No, I don't feel any bites, and I'm getting eaten alive." So I'm like, "How is it that some people don't attract mosquitoes?" But my uh, my youngest son is the same way. He's he's like a mosquito magnet, and his mosquito bites turn into welts. I mean, instantly, and it's just terrible. But uh, my other son. I don't know if he's even had a mosquito bite before. Like, I've never right. heard him complain about that. Um, but yeah, it's so weird. I'm the same way, though. The mosquitoes seem to like my blood.
1: It just makes me so angry. And I'm always, then I get self-conscious. I'm like, do I smell? Maybe I smell. Right. Maybe that's
0: all. <laughs> Maybe I'm attracting them in the wrong way. It turns way. into <laughs> a whole,
1: yeah, my self-esteem is like in the pits. Oh, can right. I share one thing of good news? And yes, only Okay. Course. So I've already told you, but I don't think I told you this other part. Um, My daughter—we talked a little. My daughter tried out for the volleyball team. She was running around, doing all the mile run and everything. But she made the varsity team, and I'm so excited. Oh wow! Wow,
0: nice. I'm pumped. That's impressive.
1: Yeah, Yeah. she's 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 thrilled. They did like diving exercises yesterday. She has the nastiest bruise on her hip, but uh, like she's really trying. She's going for it. So I'm really proud of her.
0: Yeah, she's not going into high school right She's year? not. No, no, it's
1: middle okay. school. But her, school I was like, wait a minute, high <laughs> okay. school. Yeah, 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 I know. But last year of middle school, it's it's killing me.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, I know. I'm really happy for her and excited because, especially because that age and grade level, I think it's such a great time to kind of find something new that you really like totally. and start, you know, getting started with that, and making that a hobby that, um, that you can take with you for years and years. So I'm super excited for her, and I know that you love volleyball.
1: I love it so much. Yes. She's like already told me. She's like, mom, the rules say that parents can't like, you know, you can't try to talk to me before the game or anything. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But she's like, you cannot say my name before I serve because it'll mess me up. Oh, no. Well, that one I've got to work on. (laughs) Oh god!
0: It'll be fun, though. You'll be the best volleyball mom. I'm going to get you a sticker for the back of your car. Oh, thank you. All right. So we have quite a bit to cover in the story this week. And uh, this is a case I'm really excited to tell about because I'm very excited to hear the feedback on and hear people's thoughts on this one. This is a very um, interesting case for sure. So I think we all know that with every state and really every place, there's high points and low points. But Florida in particular seems to be one state where we have a lot of different environments and lifestyles kind of coexisting together. You can be standing on the most beautiful beach surrounded by multi-million dollar oceanfront homes, incredible tropical views, and access to the most luxurious experiences, but if you get in your car and just drive for 30 minutes, you can be in the middle of nowhere surrounded by cows and potholes. Some parts of Florida are quiet and laid back, while others are bursting with excitement and a lot of noise. And these two places really are never very far from each other. Coral Gables, Florida is more of the quiet, laid back, ritzy type of area. Generally speaking, crime in Coral Gables is very low. If you were to picture the stereotypical Florida living community complete with fancy golf courses and a country club, that's the kind of area this is. And Coral Gables is where John and Susan Sutton lived in 2004 in a luxurious waterfront home in a ritzy part of town. Susan and John Sutton met in Miami in the 1970s. They married shortly after John graduated from the University of Miami Law School and started practicing as a civil attorney in 1972. Susan was the head nurse of a surgical intensive care unit, but she quit working in 1979 when she became a mother. Susan and John had trouble conceiving naturally, so they adopted a baby boy that they named Christopher Patrick. The adoption day was one of the happiest days of Susan's life. John eventually went on to open his own practice in 1981, and Susan went into business with him. She helped run the law firm and handled all the money. At some point, John brought in a partner named Teddy and made him a shareholder. And we're going to have a lot more about Teddy in just a little bit. Seven years after adopting Christopher, the Suttons adopted another baby. It was a girl that they named Melissa. Susan really loved her kids with everything that she had in her, and she was a very hands-on mom. But in 2004, the kids were both adults. Christopher was 25 and Melissa was 18, and the Sutton parents were new empty nesters. Melissa had just gone off to attend college at the University of Florida, and Chris was already living on his own with his girlfriend, Juliet. John and Susan had actually gifted a townhome to their son that year, and they did a lot more than that when it came to making sure Christopher was taken care of. They paid all of his bills, his rent, his car payment, his insurance, and they also gave him an allowance and took him and Juliet on really nice vacations. So one might say that Chris was a bit spoiled for a 25-year-old man. So late in August of 2004, it was a
1: time for celebration in the Sutton household. Susan was celebrating her 57th birthday that month, and John and his partner Teddy had just won a huge case. They won a major settlement for $1.35 million. On the evening of August twenty second, the Suttons invited Chris and Juliet to come celebrate with them and Teddy. They were going to have dinner, and then Chris and Juliet had planned to go see a movie at ten ten. Which you had a note here about. Imagine going to the movies at <laughs> ten
0: ten. I cannot. I want to be home hours before that. Like I guess I was. I mean, I guess I know that movies do run that late, and movie theaters do start movies that late. But I was like, huh. 10.10 10 to start a movie? I'm like, what time do these theaters close? That's That seems so late to me to have a movie starting. I wouldn't even do that at home. This is a young people's game. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested.
1: So they left the Sutton home around 9.15 p.m. And it wasn't long before Teddy also left and Susan and John headed off to bed. So something to note here, John and Susan actually slept in separate rooms each night because John was a bit of a snorer. And everybody's known a snorer. My mother is a snorer. I shouldn't have shared that. My dad was but a very big is. snorer. And she swore she wasn't, and I definitely recorded her to be like, "Lady, there's a problem here. it's not with me. <laughs> it's tough though. I can see how it's just like, mm, nice to see you. I'm going to sleep in the other room so I sleep tonight,
0: right. It is and i uh, I said, I grew up with my dad who snored, and so, of course, we didn't sleep in the same room all the time, but like when we would go on vacations or something and we would be in the same hotel room, it would always drive me nuts. And I would like when I got older, I asked my mom I'm like, how did you deal with that? And she said she didn't. She like never slept. But like, it's terrible. Yeah, like, oh my gosh. And there's so little that you can really do, you know, unless you get to the, I I don't know. That's a whole conversation. But literally your body
1: is just going down for the night. Like it's just
0: shutting off for the night.
1: Go in another room. Big deal. Like I have, I see no (laughs) issue with this. But the couple also kept a different schedule with Susan being a night owl and John being a morning person. So Susan would stay the night in Chris's old room. So Susan and John went to their separate rooms sometime around 10 p.m. They both turned on their TVs, and Susan sat up for a little bit texting and talking on the phone to Teddy, her husband's business partner. Unbeknownst to John, Susan had been having an affair with Teddy for some time, but Teddy was more than 15 years younger than her, and it was mostly a sexual affair, and they spent a lot of time out of the office doing recreational things together. It was just before 1030 that night when Susan was under her covers talking on the phone with Teddy when a horrifying attack on the Sutton's happened in an instant. An assailant entered the home and went straight into John's room and shot him two to three times before then going into Susan's room and firing on her. Susan was shot six times. The assailant then went back to John's room and fired the rest of the remaining bullets at him, including a shot that hit John in the face before fleeing the house.
0: Miraculously, John survived, and what's more, he was still conscious. At 10:30, John dialed 911 and said that he needed police and an ambulance. He knew he'd been shot, but what he probably didn't realize at this point anyway was that he had actually been shot in the head twice, as well as once mm-hmm. in the torso. When officers arrived just a few minutes later and knocked on the door, nobody answered, but eventually John was able to get to the door and open it to let the officers inside it was immediately clear that John had been badly hurt. He said he did not know who shot him, and he told the officers that his wife was still in the house as well. Just minutes after the officers arrived, they were surprised to see that Teddy showed up to the house. Teddy spoke with the officers on the scene, and they informed him that Susan was dead. Teddy became very emotional upon hearing this news, but his abrupt arrival on the scene made him a little bit suspicious, right? They're like... Who are you? Why did you just show up here? What's going on? How did you know to
1: come here? Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. So Teddy gave the officers some contact information for Susan and John's son, Chris, so they could notify the next of kin. Teddy told the officers he tried to call Chris himself, but he hadn't, you know, gotten any answer, which as we said, they were going to the movies that night. So that kind of makes sense that nobody was answering the phone. The officers then asked Teddy exactly what he was even doing there. And he told him that he'd been on the phone with Susan at about 1030, 30 when he heard three shots in quick succession in the background. The call ended, and Teddy tried to call back, but Susan didn't answer, so he got right into his car and drove over as quickly as possible. He did not call 911 before going over to the Sutton home or while he was on the way. When he arrived, the police were already there and had the driveway blocked off and wouldn't let him through. Teddy's hands were swabbed for gunshot residue, and he was taken to the station where he met with investigators. So back at the station, the officers are still really focused on what Teddy was doing talking to a married woman on the phone at 10 p.m., and Teddy was really guarded about the questioning. Uh, So the officers, of course, suspected that there was an affair going on. But having an affair isn't a crime, and the police had nothing else to hold Teddy on, so they had to let him go. Teddy told the officers he would try to keep getting in touch with Chris who had really been a troubled child, but now seemed to have an okay relationship with his parents.
1: Following the shooting, John Sutton was rushed to the hospital in critical condition, but Susan tragically had died immediately after being shot. When the SWAT team arrived at the house at 11.48 p.m., it was eerily quiet. The intruder was long gone, but Susan was found dead in her bed, still under her comforter. John was in the ICU in a coma following the shooting, and he remained in that state for a while, fighting for his life. He had lost a significant amount of blood, and his daughter Melissa said she could hardly even recognize him when they arrived at the hospital. Later, when John woke up, the first thing he realized was that he was in incredible facial pain, and his right eye was disfigured and blind. John had no idea what happened to Susan, and when he would ask about her, everyone would lie to him. Doctors instructed friends and family to lie to John because they worried that the stress of learning about his wife's murder would cause his own condition to worsen. This is, I understand absolutely why they do this, but I can't imagine being like Melissa in this story and knowing right. that your mom has passed away and your dad you can't asking, say anything. Yeah. Yeah. How do you even really grieve her while you're trying to keep his hopes up and, you know, keeping him? Okay, that's, oh man, that's just a lot to put on somebody. So at around 9 a.m. the day after the attack, Teddy contacted police to let them know he finally got in touch with Chris Sutton. Chris said that he agreed to meet police at his parents' house, and he showed up with his girlfriend, Juliet, a short time later. Investigators told Chris what happened and told him that his mother was dead and his father was in critical condition. Juliet immediately began crying, but Chris only had a few tears and remained mostly calm after learning the news. As per department protocol, officers escorted Chris and Juliet to the police station where they would be given a formal interview. There, Chris gave answers in a very matter-of-fact way, and he remained very stoic throughout the interview. He talked about how he and Juliet had just been at his parents' house earlier that same evening for dinner. He even brought a birthday present for his mom. And after dinner, Chris said that he and Juliet left and they went to the movies. Chris gave some background information on his parents, such as names of other family members who needed to be contacted and the reasons why his parents were sleeping in separate rooms, etc. At some point, Chris said he wanted to go to the hospital to see his dad, and the interview ended, but... It was far from the end of the questions police would have for Chris.
0: Meanwhile, investigators were still looking more into Teddy. He was John's business partner, and he was suspected of having an affair with Susan. To learn more about all of this, officers asked him to take a polygraph test, and the results showed that he lied when he was asked about his relationship with Susan. During the test, Teddy admitted to having a 9mm gun in his car, which he started carrying with him after the attack. Because he said he didn't feel safe since his business partner had just been shot in his own home, which that makes total sense to me as well. They're in this law business together and he's like, okay, um, the partner of my firm was just attacked and his wife was killed. Like, how do you – I know that this doesn't have something to do with our law practice. So when Teddy was confronted about the deception and the answer to the questions regarding having an affair, he did eventually admit that he was having an affair with Susan, which only made the investigators more suspicious of him. It didn't really make a ton of sense why he would kill Susan, though, but it still wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Teddy ended up being excluded as a suspect in the murder because it was confirmed that he was not in the Sutton home at the time of the shooting. We're not exactly sure how they confirmed this, but it probably had something to do with phone records because Teddy was on the phone talking to Susan when, he, when she was shot. Right. So obviously he wasn't the shooter himself. They could verify that he was at his house. Investigators looked into several other people and spoke with employees at the law firm to see if they knew of any unhappy clients or even former employees that might want to hurt John. The firm's paralegal said that he could only even think of one client that had gotten upset, but it never escalated to a physical confrontation or to any threats being made. And he also said that there was only one time when they had another attorney, a guy named Miles, that was working in the office, but he was dismissed after just being unable to perform the duties of the job very well. Investigators looked into these potential suspects and learned that they all had alibis. It wasn't until they started looking into the Sutton's friends that they realized they may have overlooked a potential suspect. Multiple people told police that they should really look into the Sutton's 25-year-old son, Chris, because there was quite a lot to learn when it came to Chris's background. And we're going to get into all of it after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
1: You guys know we love to talk about the weather on this show and that's because right now it is hot so so hot and guess what it's still going to be hot for a while which means nighttimes especially can be rough
0: at least that was before i had miracle brand self-cooling bed sheets and if you're like how much of a miracle could they actually be Well, because they use silver-infused fabrics originally developed by NASA, Miracle Brand sheets are literally thermoregulating, which means they're designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, which means a great night's sleep for you. And thanks to that same natural silver, 99.9% of bacterial growth is prevented, which means your sheets stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets, which means one less thing you need to worry about. Less bacteria in your sheets also means less to clog your pores, allowing for fewer breakouts or other skin problems.
1: What I love is that they feel luxuriously comfortable without being the price of gold like some other brands. The sheets are a premium 500 thread count satin weave made with USA grown Supima cotton, which is one of the best and highest quality cottons in the world. They feel amazing to sleep in. And really my only complaint is that I don't want to get out of bed in the mornings with my
0: Miracle brand sheets. Go to trymiracle.com slash moms to try it today. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Be sure to use our promo code MOMS at checkout to save 40% and get three free towels. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Brand. Go to trymiracle.com slash moms and use the code MOMS to claim your free three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash moms. Thank you, Miracle Brand, for sponsoring this episode. There's something
1: about solving a mystery that intrigues us all, whether it's finding the scissors in the same drawer they've been in for years and years that your kids just couldn't find, or contemplating the mysteries of life. With June's Journey, you can take on a mystery with much lower stakes.
0: When you play June's Journey, you get to star as June Parker, the effortlessly cool and genius amateur detective, and you'll investigate a series of mysteries where you'll find twists and turns behind each corner. As moms, our observation skills are always being put to the test. And thanks to that, now's your chance to shine while playing June's Journey.
1: For me, June's Journey is all about taking a break from real life and immersing myself into June's much more glamorous life. The game is set in the roaring 20s, and while I'm in Chapter 3, I never have to worry about running out of things to play on June's Journey because new chapters are added all the time. So whether you're playing while you should be doing laundry like me or enjoying it during commercials of Dateline – June's Journey is sure to dazzle you with its beautiful graphics and variety
0: of mysteries for you to solve. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook Games.
1: And now back to the episode. So, before the break, we were talking about this investigation into the Suttons' attack in their home. The police have been looking at Teddy, who was business partners with John um, and also having an affair with Susan, but they realized after talking to more family members and friends that maybe they've missed a suspect. As we mentioned before, Chris Sutton had a pretty easy existence thanks to his parents providing. Really nearly everything for him, including the townhome to live in, a car to drive, and they paid all of his bills. But the relationship between Chris and his parents was not always like this. A friend of John's contacted investigators and told them that he knew about a time in February of 2004 that Chris and one of his ex-girlfriends had plotted to murder the Suttons. He was unable to remember the girlfriend's name, but he knew they were together right before Chris went off to Samoa you're probably like, wait, what? Why was Chris in Samoa? Well, when Chris was just entering his teen years, John and Susan started really having a difficult time with him. Now, we all know that raising teens is difficult. Mandy and I are just starting that journey, and I think we would both agree with that sentiment? Difficult is a nice way of putting it, yes. It is a very (laughs) kind way to put it. But the issues apparently really went beyond what was typical, and they were told that Chris had oppositional defiant disorder or conduct defiant disorder. According to the Mayo Clinic, oppositional defiant disorder is a childhood mental health disorder that includes frequent and persistent anger, irritability, arguing defiance, or vindictiveness. There's no known cause, but it's thought that there may be a genetic component as well as environmental factors that influence a disorder. ODD varies in severity, but in severe cases, the person can be a danger to themselves and to others. Growing up, Chris always wanted to set his own rules and to be the boss, and the older he got, the worse this became. Susan's sister Mary said that if Chris didn't get his way, he would get extremely angry And at one point, he even pointed an unloaded rifle at his mom and sister and told them the gun was loaded and he was going to shoot them. In another instance, Chris choked his mom and told her that he could kill her if he wanted to. When it came to school, Chris struggled there as well. He was in and out of more than six schools, but he really rarely went anyway. John said he would drop Chris off at the front door and he'd just go right out the back door and skip class. But what was worse was that Chris was starting to get into trouble with the law. He and a few of his friends actually broke into a teacher's house and totally trashed the inside and vandalized the walls with spray paint. Oh my gosh, that is definitely bad behavior. So they were arrested and sued for damages to the tune of $50,000. Chris was also arrested at the age of 16 for being in possession of marijuana. But the straw that really broke the camel's back for John and Susan was that they found this note in Chris's room that had a written plan to kill them for the inheritance money. Chris was just 16 years old at the time they found this note. So when they confronted him about this note, Chris says, he's just kidding. He's not serious about this. But John and Susan didn't believe him. They were terrified of their own son, and they actually got a restraining order against him, and Chris went to stay with a friend. I can't imagine just this family dynamic is so hard because, you know, they love their kid, but of course, they have to watch for themselves and their daughter as well. Right. She's younger. Meanwhile, John and Susan started looking into ways they would be able to help Chris and they started weighing different options. Eventually, they decided they would send him to a place called Paradise Cove in the Polynesian Islands of Samoa. Sounds dreamy, right?
0: You would be absolutely wrong. Yes, yeah, so wrong. So this place, Paradise Cove, was no paradise at all. Like, it was the exact opposite of a paradise in pretty much every single way. It was a behavior modification school run by the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, which is a thing I did not know even existed. Uh, and it was famous for, quote, the extremely primitive conditions and the harshness and brutality of the school, end quote. Yikes. Yeah. The school was all-male, and it opened in the early 90s and operated up to five different campuses, housing 450 different boys at its peak. The boys slept in grass huts on mats and had to do push-ups as punishment for not following the rules. Some boys were even hogtied, put in cages, forced into hard labor, and even deprived of food. We're talking about minors. These are children, yes. New students were on the lowest level of freedoms and couldn't even go to the bathroom without a supervisor standing over them. In 1998, the U.S. State Department investigated the school and issued a statement advising parents not to send their kids there due to the abuse that the boys were suffering. But it wasn't until the year 2000 that the school was finally shut down for good. So three weeks after filing a restraining order against Chris, John and Susan had two retired officers escort him to the airport to be sent off to this school. Chris, unsurprisingly, did not go willingly. He was very upset. He later said that he didn't feel his behavior was ever that bad. His take was that he was just wanting to do his own thing, and he was just into tattoos and piercings, which were things his parents hated, but he wasn't doing anything that was actually wrong. Of course, we've already mentioned that other people have, you know, told the police about these instances where he pointed a gun at his mom and his sister and where he's put his hands around his mom's neck and said that he could kill her. So, like, for him to say, like, I wasn't actually doing anything wrong, I think maybe he's giving himself a little bit too much. Sure credit there. His perception is off on that for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So after a year in the program, Chris sent a video message to his parents. And this did kind of get to me a little bit because you can really tell that Chris just, he's struggling like mentally with different things. And so he said in part of this message, quote, all right, mom and dad wanted to tell you, I don't feel like you guys love me. I feel like I've been sent here just to get me out of your hair. You guys still dislike me for some reason. Even though my wishes aren't to be here, they don't come true, end quote. And, like, even just reading that gave me goosebumps a little bit because that's really – that's, like, oh, my gosh. Like, you just – you just want to give him a hug. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just awful, terrible. Uh, So John, Susan, and Melissa all did go to Samoa to visit Chris at one point, and they said that he did seem like he was very happy to see them. Uh, He actually tried to tell them about abuse that he was facing at the school, but the family really didn't believe it. Um, Mm -hmm. John, yeah, John, his dad just felt like Chris was fighting the program, and he didn't believe that things were truly that bad, which also you can understand. And because I'm sure when they have parents and family come to visit, like, they're not putting them in situations where they're able to see the worst of what's going on. So that's kind of what happened with that. So when Chris's 18th birthday was getting closer, though, John and Susan knew that he would be able to check himself out of the program. So they had a judge in Miami order that Chris stay at Paradise Cove. I am not really sure what their plan was you know, the long-term plan with that right. because, you know, he can't stay there forever. It's not a prison. You can't just keep having a judge order him to stay there if he doesn't want to stay there. Um So I, w- I don't really know. I don't know if they were just trying to buy themselves some time to kind of figure out right. what would be a good situation. But a
1: judge in Miami even being able to to do that grant that authority is right. pretty
0: wild. Yeah, it is. When Chris found out about this, he was obviously furious. He, uh, at that point, wrote out a plan to kill his mom, which she did later find out about. In 1999, when Chris was 19, he did finally return home to the United States. Within just a few months, he met Juliet, who was 17 at the time. They began dating, and they were still dating when John and Susan were shot. Juliet said that the Suttons treated her just like a daughter of their own. Susan taught her about makeup and clothes, and John was just really supportive and even gave her a job as a receptionist at the law firm. Chris got a job working at Bay Plumbing and dealt drugs on the side from the time he got back into the U.S. John and Susan also gave Chris an allowance, which was evidently never big enough for him, and he often pressured them into giving him more. So all this information definitely gives the officers something to think about
1: when it comes to solving this case. On one hand, it seemed like Chris had a motive, but on the other hand, he was living the good life thanks to his parents, so why would he want to hurt them? While John was in the hospital, Teddy, Chris, and Juliet, and the law firm's accountant all took turns staying with him. It was decided that when John was released from the hospital, he would stay with Chris and Juliet because he needed full-time care. Chris, at this point, basically sees dollar signs over his dad's head. He tries to get John to write a blank check, put his name on the family account, and sell the house in Coral Gables. And he wanted to get paid for all the time he spent helping John during his
0: recovery. Oh, my gosh. I, like, just no. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine, like, something... Horrific happening to somebody in your family, and then your son is like, "You have to pay me if you want me to help you, like to recover." Right. Like, that is way out there to me. Like that's just crazy, right? And meanwhile, like
1: he's already funding your life. Like you're already making money. He's already taking care of you. Like you don't have to worry about it. Why? Why are you pushing this? Right. So John refuses to do any of this, and in early September, John has to undergo surgery, and Chris is nowhere to be found. He was actually at a tailgate party for a football game, which really hurt John, but it also made him a little angry. Before John had his surgery, Teddy goes to visit him, and John confides in Teddy that he has concerns that his own son Chris had something to do with all of this. And John said he'd been feeling that way for a while. So Teddy warned John that he should not stay with Chris when he leaves the hospital. But John thought about it and said they would have an LPN come in to help and that Chris and Juliet would both be at his disposal, so it would be fine for a temporary situation. Susan's sister, Mary, also told John not to move in with Chris because she felt like Chris was behind the attack. Mary said she also had felt that way for a while, since just before Susan's funeral. She said that she heard Chris talking about the attack and he described the way the killer went down the hallway and just generally he was talking about these details that hadn't been made public yet and it just did not sit right with her. Because of all the surgeries and the long recovery, John wasn't interviewed by homicide detectives until October 6th. They tried to see if John remembered anything about the attacker, but unfortunately he only recalled bits and pieces. He believed the shooter had on a black shirt pants, and a visor or
0: hat, all of it being black, but he couldn't really tell much about the shooter's physical appearance. So let's break down Chris's alibi then. He admitted that he was at his parents' house the night of the shooting, but he and Juliet had left and gone to see a movie. If you remember, nobody could really get a hold of Chris the night of the attack, and it wasn't until the following morning that the authorities were able to contact him and notify him about about the attack and about his mother's death. Interestingly, Almost immediately after Chris was told that his mom was dead, he quickly launched into the story of his alibi without even being asked. He told the officer that he and Juliet went to the movies and said that he still had the ticket stubs if the officer wanted to see them, and this investigator thought this was a little weird because she never asked chris where he was the night you know before Mm. or asked him to provide an alibi she was simply there delivering this terrible news and was getting ready to offer condolences and chris immediately comes out and is like i was at the movies i didn't do anything this was shortly before chris was taken to the station that first time where he gave that very stoic interview investigators went to the movie theater that chris and juliet had gone to that night and looked at the surveillance tapes They did see Chris and Juliet leaving the actual theater, and before they got out of the building, Chris got on his cell phone. So this led them to order Chris's cell phone records to find out who he talked to. They ended up finding that the number he dialed that night actually appeared on his phone records 331 times in total in the weeks leading up to the murder. This number belonged to a guy named Garrett Kopp, one of Chris's on-again, off-again friends. They mostly spent time together getting high and playing video games, but they had known each other for a few years. In an interesting twist, investigators learned that Garrett had actually been arrested on other charges less than 24 hours after the Suttons were killed, and he was currently out on bail. On August 23rd, he was arrested on assault charges after two men in Homestead, Florida, said he pulled a gun on them. So these two men were able to wrestle the gun away from Garrett, and they handed this gun over to the police. According to Garrett, what happened that night was that he pulled into Monterey Point at about 10 p.m. and another car pulled up next to him and got onto him for peeling out and told him to stop doing that. And so two men got out of the car and walked up to Garrett and one of them actually hit Garrett in the face. And so when these two men had their back to him, he pulled a gun out and threatened them. But then they, yeah, but then they wrestled the gun from him and went back to their own car. Garrett, you know, was like, hey, can I have the gun back? And these guys said, no, you absolutely cannot. And (laughs) yeah, so then Garrett got in his car and quickly left. But he was arrested a short time later. And then our friend Chris Sutton bailed him out of jail. Mm -hmm. So the investigators still had the gun that these two men had taken from Garrett and turned over to them. And so they thought maybe we should test this gun against the one that was used in the Sutton attack. To their surprise... It was a match. So Garrett was then brought in for questioning. During his interview
1: with police, Garrett admitted to shooting John and Susan Sutton, but he refused to say why he had done it. He spent about six hours being questioned. Investigators explained to him that they knew he had no reason to shoot two innocent people and that someone had to put him up to it. They even went so far as to allege that Chris had put him up to it. But Garrett remained quiet. So investigators told him he was being arrested for the attack and they warned him that he'd better speak up and say what happened because the death penalty was fully on the table. That's when Garrett finally cracked and told them that it was Chris who put him up to the murder, but Garrett said it wasn't something he ever even wanted to do. According to Garrett, Chris had actually threatened to kill both Garrett and his son. If he didn't murder John and Susan, Garrett didn't even get any money for this shooting, but he said that he did spend months planning it with Chris and that Chris showed him how to get into the house undetected through a sliding glass door that his parents always left unlocked. On the night of August 22nd, Garrett said he took Xanax and smoked pot before approaching the residence on foot and entering through the backsliding door. He snuck in and he waited for his eyes to adjust to the darkness before going down the hallway and into John's bedroom. Garrett said the lights were off, but the TV was on and he fired two to three shots at John, causing him to flip off the bed. Garrett then went to Susan's room and shot about five rounds at the silhouette on the bed. He then went back to John's room and emptied the rest of the magazine. After hearing Garrett's story, they knew he was telling the truth because the details he described were accurate and he'd have no way of knowing them if he hadn't been there. So after the interview was finished, Garrett was charged with first-degree murder and armed burglary. At this point, there wasn't quite enough to arrest Chris, but they continued investigating his involvement and spoke to numerous people who knew him, which led to investigators finding out some very disturbing things about Chris. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. (laughs) Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I saw a TikTok the other day that said, parenthood is just saying, but after this week, things will slow down a bit. And boy, did that hit hard. I find myself struggling to be in the moment at times because I feel so overwhelmed with the future and how it always seems like more things are being added to your cup, but nothing is taken out. Having someone I can talk to about things like this is really invaluable to me. And that's why I'm so thankful for my counselor with
0: BetterHelp. And with BetterHelp, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours to discuss those things you've been dealing with on your own. Having someone there just to listen and offer advice can really change things for you. And BetterHelp is all about convenience. It's online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. So if you don't want to see anyone on camera, you don't have to. Plus, it's more affordable than in-person therapy.
1: We hear a lot about physical health, but mental health is really just as important. How we care for our minds can literally affect how we experience life and even how our kids view life. I'm so thankful for my BetterHelp therapist and look forward to all of our chats on the phone because I am not a video type person.
0: Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com moms. That's betterhelp.com slash moms. Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So, before the break, we had gotten into quite a bit of this story about the attack on Susan and John Sutton. And the police are very sure that their son Chris has something to do with this crime. However, They have also discovered that his friend Garrett was the actual shooter, and now they're kind of just trying to figure out, connect the dots, and figure out how they can tie Chris to this murder. So first and foremost, the police believe that the person who would have the most helpful information for them would be Chris's girlfriend, Juliet. So they brought her back in for questioning, and she really stood by her man for 14 minutes hours enduring very harsh interrogation methods and tremendous pressure just to fess up so eventually she did cave and start talking she said that chris had been acting pretty weird on the evening of august 22nd she also told them about how they had gone to the sutton house for a celebration and then went to the movies but she said that the whole night she felt like chris was really just rushing to get out of his parents house and she said that Chris's close friend Garrett called him right before their movie was about to start. Juliet was asked about Chris and the way he felt about his parents, and she said that for years, anytime Samoa was brought up, Chris would start talking about how his parents needed to pay for what they did to him by sending him there. This really seemed to be a topic of conversation that just really upset Chris anytime it you know came up. There were massive fights between Chris and his parents over money, and sometimes Chris would outright say things such as that his parents needed to die and that he would hire someone to kill them. He always fought with Susan when it came to money, but he never fought with his dad, John, about that. He really acted like an entitled baby when it came to finances and would call his mom terrible names if she refused to give him what he wanted. Juliet said that it had just been that way for the entire time she'd known him And Chris was constantly trying to figure out how much his parents were worth and the value of their assets, such as the house, their cars, their bank accounts, etc. And he would frequently talk about how he believed his parents were worth a few million dollars if they were dead. In the weeks leading up to the attack, Chris had been talking a lot about how he and Juliet would be better off when John and Susan were gone and that they would have to share the money with Melissa, but there would still be plenty to go around. Juliette said that shortly before the attack, Christopher tried to get Susan to pay his $1,500 car insurance, but she refused to do so because she said that Chris had been misusing his money. And this, of course, made Chris super mad. He knew that his dad had just won that $1.3 million settlement we mentioned earlier, and he felt like he was entitled to have his parents, you know, pay for some of his things. One of the most disgusting things that Juliet said was that after the attack, Chris told her that it was better that his dad lived and not his mom because now he could just have whatever he wanted. Yeah. Juliet said that she just knew Chris was going to kill his parents one day, but she didn't know when. She said at some points it was like the boy who cried wolf. He talked about it so many times that eventually she just tuned it out and stopped taking it seriously at all, which I do have questions. Uh, about that, I, I don't understand how that would be a comfortable situation for you to actually believe that the person you're dating is capable and willing to kill their own parents. I just don't get that. And But you're like, yeah, I just – it was fine. I just knew it was going to happen, but I didn't know when. That's a little – I don't know. Yeah,
1: but she started dating him when she was young. So this True. is kind of all she knew. And like the beginning when we were talking about Susan kind of taking her under her wing, stuff like that, she probably felt like she owed a lot to the family. And it doesn't sound like he was the greatest guy, so that's right. where I kind of think like maybe she was being treated really poorly or and manipulated as well. too. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. yeah, but I get because my initial thought is, oh my gosh, tell somebody. But right, like, yeah, yeah, of course,
0: yeah. So after this interview with Juliet, the police finally did have enough to arrest Chris.
1: A warrant was issued, and Chris was wanted on charges of first degree murder and attempted murder, but he was nowhere to be found, leading investigators to believe that he may have fled the state. They called John and warned him not to let anyone inside his house and not to pick up the phone because they were worried that Chris was going to go over there and hurt him. They told him they thought Chris was involved in the attack. John was really stunned, but he admitted that what the police were saying made sense to him. At some point, officers got word that Chris was trying to sell his truck for about $10,000 and they believed he was trying to flee the country, but they kept looking into that case more. Investigators soon learned that at some point before the attack, Chris actually asked a coworker of his if he knew of any hitmen that could kill his parents. This co-worker named Jose said that it was clear that Chris was 100% serious about this. He told Jose that his parents were worth between $500,000 and $1 million plus life insurance and assets. Chris went around bragging about how he was going to come into some money soon. Meanwhile, officers were still looking for Chris and trying to figure out where he had gone. Finally, they received a tip that Chris was at a payphone in Miami. Turns out, he didn't leave the state at all. Local authorities were able to find him and arrest him there. When Chris was informed that Garrett and Juliet had given statements that incriminated him, as well as telling him about the box of phone records that they had, Chris broke down and started sobbing and acknowledged that he was screwed. He put his head down on the table for a moment, and then he asked, quote, What's the minimum, maximum time I can do or that I would be looking at? End quote. Which is,
0: my gosh, just like the most selfish way of thinking every step of the way. Oh, for sure. And the investigators were taking all this in, and they're thinking that Chris's reaction was for sure a sign of his guilt. But Chris was really still in a little bit of denial, and he insisted that he was only reacting this way because the police didn't know the true story, and he felt that they were just really trying to railroad him. One investigator told Chris that they knew he had an idea about why his parents were shot, and they asked, "'Did you hate your parents that much?' And Chris replied, "'You tell me. You just don't know. If I tell my side of the story, you aren't going to believe me. You don't have the total truth.'" And he said it didn't matter what he told them. He was screwed either way. I'm using that word because the one that he was using was not as friendly for (laughs) moms and murder. And it started with an F. He used that word quite a bit. So the investigators see that Chris is getting really upset and they offer him a break from the questioning and they let him get some food and something to drink. About an hour later, once he had a chance to eat and he had a few minutes to think, the interview resumed. Chris was asked if he owned a gun and he said no. He was then asked about Garrett and whether or not he had any animosity with John and Susan. And Chris said no, but he did add that he felt Garrett was a POS uh, because he dealt drugs and robbed people and shoots people. So the officer was like, well, who else has Garrett shot besides your parents? And Chris didn't have any answer. Chris said he didn't really know how to help himself and there, there was no way he could prove his innocence. He said it would be a lot easier to talk to the police if everyone didn't already think he was guilty, which I do get that. At the same time, there's a lot of evidence that is pointing towards him. So like, please maybe don't try the sympathy card. Like everybody already thinks I'm guilty. Like that kind of comes off as like a little bit whiny and like, I don't know, just like get over it, you know? So the investigators told Chris that if he had any other leads, you know, for them to investigate, they would love to hear it. But of course, Chris didn't have any. He said that he'd been trying to sell his truck for uh, an attorney, but it seemed like he didn't really understand the cost of a homicide defense and uh, didn't understand that $10,000 wasn't going to go that far anyway. About four hours into the interview, they told Chris, quote, look, we've been in this interview room for four hours discussing the death of your mother and the shooting of your father. And during that entire time, you never stopped me at all and said, hey, look, I didn't do this. Mm. I do think that speaks volumes. Oh, yeah. So Chris, at that point, started sobbing and saying, you know, I'm effed. But when he was asked if he would give a sworn statement, he still refused. And the interview was ended.
1: In February of 2008, Garrett pleaded guilty to the reduced charge of second-degree murder, attempted premeditated murder, and armed burglary battery. He was sentenced to 30 years plus five years of probation and given five years for the aggravated assault charge from the incident where he pulled the gun on the two men that wrestled it away from him. He also agreed to testify against Chris as part of his plea deal. It wasn't until July of 2010 that Chris Sutton finally went to trial. At this point, John's business partner and the man Susan was having an affair with, Teddy, had passed away from a heart-related problem. John had been informed about the affair and that his wife was on the phone with Teddy when she was shot sometime in 2005. The news was, of course, very upsetting to John. He really took it rough. But in Chris's trial, both the prosecution and the defense were prohibited from bringing up the affair. They didn't even introduce the texts and calls from that night into evidence. The prosecution's theory was that Chris had hired his friend Garrett to kill his parents to get back at them for sending him to boarding school and to get his hands on their money. They said that starting in 1996, Chris was telling people that he wanted to make his parents pay for what they did by sending him off to Samoa. Chris was like a broken record, going on and on about how his parents had taken two years of his life, how they deserved to pay for it, and how he would find someone to kill them. The prosecutor said the only person in the world that wanted and would benefit from John and Susan being dead was their son,
0: Chris. Garrett also testified for the prosecution and said that back in 2005, he and Chris were both having a lot of financial problems, and all he even cared about at that time was money. Chris started talking about killing his parents for their money and offering Garrett up to $100,000 to complete the hits. And Garrett said that he really didn't even question what his friend was saying at the time. He just had his eye on the money. The two of them discussed everything in the months prior to the attack. They talked about what weapon to use and how they could make sure the gun wasn't traced back to either of them. Chris actually had met a random guy in a park and made a swap where he traded a Mac 11 machine pistol for two other pistols, one of which was the murder weapon, and a quarter pound of marijuana. So once the gun was secured, Garrett started getting cold feet, and he expressed that he didn't want to go through with the killing, but Chris insisted that they'd come too far to stop now. Garrett was scared of Chris and what he would do to him if he bailed out on the plan. Garrett told the full story about how he got into the house and what he did once he was inside that night, and then he was very heavily cross-examined by the defense, who pointed out numerous discrepancies in the story he was telling compared to the one that he told police during the investigation. They also questioned how scared he really could have been of Chris, considering that's the person he called to bail him out of jail when he was arrested on August 23rd. They also brought up that during his confession, Garrett said he wasn't sure where the 9mm gun used in the murder came from. But then on the stand, he said the story about how Chris had met this guy named Richie and made a trade for it. The defense accused Garrett of simply blaming Chris to avoid the death penalty himself, but they also said that the Miami-Dade homicide detectives had pressured him into confessing in the first place. Garrett admitted that they did get in his face, but they didn't try to hurt him or anything like that. They just made statements such as, you need to tell us something because they're going to fry you in the electric chair. So Juliet also testified for the prosecution, but she didn't exactly point the finger at Chris. In fact, she said that she still didn't believe he was behind the attack and that she was still confused about the whole thing. She said, quote, I don't know if he did it or not. Nobody knows what really happened except for him and Garrett. John also testified for prosecutors and he spoke about Chris's adoption and his childhood and how things started getting a lot harder when Chris was becoming a teenager He painted a picture of a kid who had a pretty dang good life, full of opportunities, but he just kept rebelling, and eventually they sent him to the school in Samoa. When talking about the night of the attack, he said that after he settled into bed to watch TV, a figure appeared in the bedroom door and he could see a black hat, black shirt, and black pants, and then there were gunshots, and the next thing John remembered was being on the floor. He struggled to call 911 and tried to escape the house, but after that, he just remembers waking up in the hospital with a throbbing head, a confused mind, and a body that he said felt like had been obliterated. Wow.
1: When it was time for the defense to take the floor, they went the route of alleging that everyone, every single person involved in this story, was a liar. Everyone, but Chris, that is. They alleged that the only evidence against Chris were the forced statements he gave to the police. But everyone else, John, Juliet, Garrett, everyone who told the police about
0: the family history, they were all
1: liars. They made everything up. I
0: don't understand how you can go with that. Like, as an attorney, attorneys are very smart. How, as an attorney that's very smart, do you think, this is going to be a great defense? <laughs> well, all they have to do is show
1: reasonable doubt, right? I mean, they don't they don't have to prove – who did it
0: they just have to say
1: it wasn't their client so anything i guess goes but
0: but i feel like silliness like this like saying everyone's a liar except for your client like that kind of damages your own credibility i think so because i think it just makes you look silly right like you're just like okay (laughs) like whatever you say
1: yeah exactly so they told the jury that it was garrett who attacked the suttons and that chris had nothing to do with it garrett broke in when he was high on drugs and desperate for money and he knew the layout of the home because he'd been there before The defense argued that there was no financial motive to the murder and that Chris wasn't really even that angry at his mom and dad. They even went so far as to say the Suttons were good parents to Chris and that Chris loved his parents and had no reason to want them dead. Chris took the stand to testify on his own behalf. He of course denies having anything to do with his mom's murder and the attempted murder of his father. He said he'd never wanted to hurt them and he loved them. He also said when he was a teenager, he butted heads with his parents because they didn't approve of his gothic rocker style. And the only time Chris actually got emotional during the trial was when he talked about the time he spent in Samoa. The first few months were just a shock. He said he was in complete denial about actually being sent there. And during this point of uh, the testimony, Chris was actually sobbing uncontrollably and the judge actually ended up calling a recess so he could compose himself. When court resumed, Chris talked about how happy he was to come home from Samoa and to see his family. He said he cried when he got off the plane and there was a lot of affection between the family members. Chris alleged that he realized the program was good for him as more time passed. Chris talked about the night of the attack and said that Garrett had been calling him that night looking for drugs. And Chris said he didn't have access to anything because all of his drugs were stashed at his parents' house in his old train set in his former bedroom. That would be the one that his mom slept in. Chris alleged that he hid two pounds of marijuana and some Xanax in there.
0: On July 21st, 2010, the jury began deliberations that would end up taking a day and a half to complete. They finally returned with a verdict, and Chris Sutton was found guilty on first-degree murder, attempted premeditated murder, attempted felony murder, and armed burglary and battery. Chris was stunned that he was convicted and said that he truly believed he was going to be acquitted. When Chris was to be sentenced, his dad, John, chose not to ask the judge for leniency – And this is interesting, too, because keep in mind, his father is an attorney, you know, so he knows what options he has when he's in front of a judge. He knows, you know, what can be done and the right things to say. He knows the terminology. And he's choosing not to even try to help his son in any way with the situation. He said, quote, regardless of the result, this is a bad case. I lost Susan. I lost Christopher long before that. I lost my eyesight. So Chris was sentenced to life in prison without parole for each count all of his efforts to appeal have so far been unsuccessful. He's mostly tried to appeal based on the claim that he should have been able to tell the jury that it was Teddy who hired Garrett to murder the Suttons. Investigators apparently had learned that Teddy and Susan were embezzling money from the law firm and they got about $200,000 out of it, but they never ended up looking into the possibility that You know, Teddy had a financial motive to murder because, to be fair, they said that all of the evidence pointed towards Chris and not Teddy. So that's why they didn't really go looking any further into that. The jury never heard a word about any of this because nothing about the affair was ever allowed to be introduced in court. Later on, John sued Teddy's estate and won almost $619,000 for the thefts. John said in an affidavit that Susan was the one who encouraged and nearly insisted that he bring Teddy on as a shareholder, and the agreement was that John would get 60% and Teddy would get 40%. Apparently, before they even executed this agreement, John voiced his concerns about the relationship between Teddy and Susan, and he asked them if they were having an affair, which they denied. John also had concerns about Teddy's spending habits at that time. He noticed that Teddy would do things like accepting cash from clients without immediately going and depositing the same amount of money. Right before the attack happened, Susan told John that Teddy had about $100,000 of cash in his attic. And when John asked her why he would have that, she said he would have to ask Teddy about that. But he never got the chance to.
1: It's like a whole nother story within a story. Yeah, yeah. So where are they now? John is now working on regaining his vision and he continues to practice law. He actually memorizes his briefs and has an aide help him. He also has a new woman in his life and when he's not working, he likes to go open water diving and skiing. John told 48 Hours he doesn't like to spend time feeling sorry for himself because it really doesn't do him any good to wallow in disaster. He said he wasn't going to sit around and for the rest of his life dwell on what happened. He's made it a point to do everything he can with no hesitation. Melissa, John and Susan's daughter, said she will never speak to Chris again after what he did. She said her parents were the best parents and whatever happened with Chris wasn't their fault. They loved him and her unconditionally and gave him every opportunity that he deserved, but Chris didn't take advantage of it. Melissa said, quote, the whole trial opened the wound back up, the loss of my mom, the blindness of my dad, and the loss of my brother, end quote.
0: I feel so bad for Melissa in this story. Me too. Me too. You just can't even imagine. That's just so many things. And it's also like, that's so many heavy things to have to like carry with you and be burdened with. Like, oh my gosh, I just, my heart goes out to her.
1: But even beyond that, I mean, I could be really reading into this, but knowing that if both the parents had died... She and her brother would have split the money. Who knows what would have happened after that with with him? I don't think he would have wanted to split anything. Right. So Chris and Garrett are both still in prison. Chris is incarcerated at the Holmes Correctional Institute in Bonifay, Florida. He will be there for the rest of his life, barring some sort of miracle with his appeals. Garrett is at Avon Park Correctional in Avon Park, Florida. He is scheduled to be released in March of 2035.
0: Wow, there's so much about this story that is just like, oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts and feelings and emotions. It is I think John said it best when he said this is no matter what, this is just a hard case, but I feel like it's a hard situation and it was for years, you know, for this family. Yeah. Very, very tough stuff in this episode and Absolutely. very interesting. Just it's just an interesting case. So yeah, let us know what you guys think about that one. It feels like there was a time when there were lots of these, like,
1: camps that people sent their kids to with the hopes that their kids would, you know, it would be helpful and, and all of that. And a lot of them ended up being pretty traumatizing. I'm not saying that's yeah. excuse at all for anything that happened. But, like, Paris Hilton and the Provo Canyon School, like, that has been a big thing in the news in the past couple of years. But, like, all of these places where very good intentioned people have sent their kids ends up being just absolutely. I mean, this one got shut down. There, There's reasons for that. They're hogtieing right. kids. So,
0: Well, I, yeah, I was saying, um, I was talking to my husband about this case too. And I was even saying that I was surprised to hear that this type of school even existed in the 90s and it got shut down in 2000. But the fact that that could even exist in as recently as 2000, it's like, I'm like, what? Because that just sounds so barbaric and like out there, like to send yeah. your kid away to like an live on an island where they have this like... I don't know. It just – it just blows me away because I can't believe that that was even a thing even in the 90s. Like that's – it just seems like it was not long enough ago.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, like you also understand that they had to make a decision to do something. So it's just so much. So I, I
0: feel for the whole family for sure. For sure. Um, So just a quick shout out. Thank you so much to Haley, our lovely researcher, for helping us with this episode. And Haley is now also working with a research assistant named Anna, and she's done a few um, episodes with Haley that we've done on the podcast. We have been loving uh, both of their work together. Thank you so much. uh, Yeah. When they both work on them, I feel like it's always so much information. We get lots of it. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right, Melissa, it is time to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go. I think we're just doing something a little fun funsies this week, right? Yes,
1: that is the goal is funsies.
0: Okay, perfect. So what are we doing?
1: <laughs> so we're just doing like family feud questions to each other to right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. And yeah, that's what we're doing. So I'm going to give you a topic. You give me, you have 30 seconds on the board. You tell me as many things in there as you think people have answered it's family feud so you Perfect. get how it goes okay i get it. all right ready okay. <laughs> all right name something little kids hate to do go
0: take a bath yep get in the car seat okay clean up after themselves okay <laughs> um be quiet Ooh. Uh no actually that's not another <laughs> um we're starting uh, school think of one starting school that is the one oh. <laughs> going to school <laughs> going to school okay so, oh doing homework
1: yes I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that one so we'll okay. give you three so it was take a bath eat vegetables clean the room oh. go to bed on time homework brush your teeth go to church go to the doctor doctor is lower on the list than
0: yeah. I thought yeah my kids don't mind going to the doctor I guess we don't yeah. really go that often maybe that's why
1: yeah maybe my <laughs> son is always like you're not giving me a shot right we're not we're not getting a shot right? Aw. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, Melissa, I want you to tell me some things uh, for the question. What would another driver do that would make you mad? All right, ready, set. Have their blinker just going. Um,
1: speed up or slow down. Ride in the slow lane when they should be in the fast lane. Ride in the fast <laughs> lane when they should be in the slow <laughs> lane. Um, uh, flick you off, I guess. Um, oh, my gosh, honk yeah. Honk at you. Yep, um, yep, Throw things in your general direction.
0: <laughs> okay so we have you did get honk okay and you said people who have their uh, people who have their blinker on continuously yeah um that's not on the list but what is on there Should is be. failure to use your turn signal
1: fine the other one just annoys me <laughs>
0: yes we also have talking on the phone cutting you off and failing to pick a lane please stay in your lane people
1: <laughs> actually that one's pretty good i agree yeah okay my next one is what is a nickname someone gives their lover that starts with the word sugar? All right. Ready? This feels familiar. Set. Go. Sugar bear.
0: Okay. Sugar baby. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sugar boo. Sugar boo. Okay. Sugar plum. Okay. Um, I don't know. How many things start with sugar?
1: I got three more. All right. Here they are. Sugar pie? Oh. That's a very um not elder millennial, even older than that. That's yeah. like a boomer thing. Um sugar daddy. Oh uh, that's uh, but not I don't, what you <laughs> I don't know you would call them that. that's something, yeah. <laughs> you call them that to your friend as right. they give you money. Um, and last one is sugar lips
0: which Ooh. I feel like we weren't supposed to see that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Melissa, you should be good at this one. I'm giving you one – I'm giving you a good one. I think okay. you'll be good at. All right. Name a popular comedy TV series. All right. Ready,
1: set, yes. go. The Office, Friends, Parks and Rec, Seinfeld. Um, you said comedy, right? Um, yes. New Girl, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, I just don't know what era this is in, so I'm a little confused.
0: I'm gonna say this is nineties. This Frazier, is nineties and two thousands. E-
1: no, ER is not one. Um, no, that's all I got then.
0: Okay. Well, you got friends in Seinfelds, but you did not you did not get modern family, the big bang theory, and the Simpsons, which I don't I guess I consider that. My, the
1: Big Bang Theory? <laughs> get out, to- out of here with that. That is not <laughs> anything. I refuse. I would that's refuse to acknowledge the points on that. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> no, that's crap. I mean, if you like Big Bang, that good for you. Um, but that's all I can say about that. Ready, last one. <laughs> okay. okay, name an animal starting with the letter C that you'd never want to eat. <laughs> ready?
0: <laughs> one of them doesn't even make sense. All right, ready, set, go. Cat. Okay, top of the list. Oh, this is going to be hard because now I have to think you of have think animals. Think of C animals. Yeah, letter C. Um, why can't I think of anything that starts with a C? Because <laughs> I will eat – I eat most things that start with a C. I It's like I eat crab and cow and I so, don't even know okay. of any other animals that start I with was <laughs> actually
1: <laughs> on there, which is surprising. Um, so are you saying that
0: you – I'd like to go on record saying
1: the things Mandy would be comfortable eating are a camel, a no. cougar, <laughs> cheetah, <laughs> and a coyote. Wow. You're a oh, monster. Wow.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Awful, awful. It was hard because it was hard to even think of animals that start with a C it that you would so eat. so specified. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that one was definitely tricky. Okay. So I am going on a camping trip this weekend. I'm very excited. So I thought for my last one for you, I would do name things that you bring on a camping trip. Okay. Ready, set,
1: bug spray all day. Uh, tent, um, sleeping bag, lantern, firewood, matches, um a um, I'm not sure. How about a ticket to go just stay at a hotel and cancel the
0: whole thing? <laughs> oh, I can't believe you didn't get like a couple of these because you seem like you would have guessed them. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So you got tent, sleeping bag. Um, okay, so then what you didn't have on your list was bug spray or sunscreen? I said bug spray. I said bug oh, spray you? all day. First oh, sorry. time out of my mouth. Oh, you did. That's right. You did. Okay, sunscreen though, you didn't say. Mm. Um toilet paper. Oh. A compass. No. What? It's and, 2022. And we also have on the list food, which I appreciate <laughs> because when I'm packing for a camping trip, I definitely need to make sure I have enough food. <laughs> I was like, forget that. I'm not getting a mosquito bite. <laughs> that sounds about
1: right. Well, that there was fun. Yeah.
0: All right, so that was the silly episode
1: for this week. Real quick before we go, we are going to be playing a promo for our friends, uh, from our friends Ashley and Ricky with the Crime Salad podcast. So check that out. It will play just after you hear our voices for the last time on this episode. We're not going anywhere and we're not
0: dying. Don't die on your camping trip. Go ahead. All right, guys, we will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Hey there, my name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. We're husband and wife, part-time investigators and hosts of the podcast Crime Salad.
1: Crime Salad is a true crime podcast that investigates sudden disappearances, mysterious deaths, unsuspecting massacres, while also bringing attention to current cases or cases you may not have heard of. Some cases include twists, turns, and shocking conclusions, like the Lululemon murders or the episode titled Ghost in the Wind, the Disappearance of Jolene Cummings. We cover all of the cases and true crime tales we're all craving to learn about. If any of these stories intrigue you, we recommend listening to Crime Salad wherever you're listening now. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode.